Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Football by Football podcast. Let's do it. And here we go. Back here with Real Thing Patriots podcast. I'm Matt Chatham, your host. Excited to be doing this show on a bye week on a snowy little day here. I'm recording this in the morning on Thursday as the uh, the bomb storm or whatever the hell it's called is on its way. Uh, so kind of cozy little thing here with some hot coffee and uh, a pile of notes after watching the game a couple times different ways and, you know, kind of going through the stats and trying to beat up on some of the myths that are out there about this Patriots defense. It's been a fun week for that. It's sort of reflective for me uh, where you get to kind of take these narratives and punch them full of holes uh, that, you know, the things that people start to think about something that's just simply not true on tape. It's easy to go find. And, uh, you know, all those misperceptions that go on with stats and football that uh, tend to build up over the course of the year and mean absolutely diddly squat. So we get to do a fun show where we beat up on that stuff and uh, also review the Patriots-Jets game a little bit just to kind of give you a sense of where this team is uh, in their in their final regular season game. But we're going to spend this show basically concentrating on a quick review of of the Jets thing, and then where the Patriots stand as a team, generally speaking, as they went through this bye. And as I mentioned, a big part of that is reintroducing yourself <laughs> to this defense. I know if you're if you're a, a, a fan of this podcast and you've been listening throughout the season, you know most of this stuff. But part of this is to to beat back all the people that don't listen to the show, that, that lo- love the little runaway talk about stuff that's just simply not accurate about the team. So um, we'll keep it bias-free and just give you the – the, the nitty gritty, the stuff that's there. You make your own judgment, but uh, we'll get into that later. First of all, as I mentioned, let's do this Jets game, and we're going to do this a little different than than weeks past. You know, I don't want to go play by play through every drive here. Uh, I'd rather just hit on big themes and, and understand. This is something I tweeted about during the game, uh, in part because I was there and I was experiencing it both as both as a former player and now as an, an analyst at working in the media. Where you know I walked the field in pregame uh, against the Jets, and it was friggin' miserable out there. Now you know my my best point of, re- of reference, obviously, is that old Tennessee divisional game in '03 or '04, whatever that was, when it was you know one of the colder games in Patriots history. Uh, this was. A tick above that, so it wasn't quite that bad, but pretty pretty darn close. When you were down there on the field, uh, you know, wind is whipping around. If you take any exposed skin out of uh, you know out of out of a covering of any kind, it's it's freezing. You know, you're heading towards frostbite in a matter of minutes. It sucked. I mean, it just really sucked. And I think the one thing that became most apparent is beyond just being uncomfortable. You know, you know, my my blood's not as is not as thick as it was when I was playing. I'm not you know I'm out there all lubed up and running around. And keeping my body warm either so there's going to be a little bit of a a misperception there on my own part but uh it wasn't the kind of conditions where you expect anything statistically 
positive to come out of it. It's survive and advance day. Down in the field, you're just saying, okay, this is going to dramatically change scheme. It's dramatically going to change the passing game. I think that's probably one of my <laughs> bigger laugh track issues uh, of this past week where people want to use certain throws or certain things or even, good Lord, reading from the box score about what happened with the Patriots passing game against the Jets and try to extrapolate that into you know anything moving forward into the postseason. I mean, it's just, it's a colossal waste of time, people. It's just that that was condition-specific, the, the things that they're doing or because of what's going on outdoors. And it's very unlikely that it'll be that way the next time you step on the field, and it really connects in no way to the other weeks that weren't like that. So, um, you know, I, that's why I'm not going to give you a hardcore breakdown of every throw. I'm not going to give you a hardcore breakdown of, of really anything in the passing game other than a concept or two and some stuff to keep an eye on in the event that, you know, this – those conditions repeat themselves uh, in the divisional round or AFC championship game if the Patriots make it that far. So part of it is just talking about how you handle those situations and not using what happens in them to make some sort of forward projection about the veteran quarterback or, or the state of the passing game where they to be playing an indoor game in Minnesota, you know, if they make it to the Super Bowl. So those things are entirely different and separate from one another. It's why stats that run across all those things that pretend like the aggregate makes sense. That's why they're so dumb. Uh, Each is individual. Each is specific. And you have to sort of understand what's going on in its own little ecosystem. And this game sits apart from the other. So, you know, one of the more aggravating things I think I've seen over the last, you know, month and a half is people will lump together all the offensive performances, both by Brady and just the group as a whole, into the last six weeks. Well, the last six weeks were independent performances. Different stuff, different times. Uh, Both of the Buffalo games and and one of the Miami games, huge run game focus. That's going to mute the passing game in part. Uh, You know, so that's, you don't expect quite the same output and I think what people have seen is you know Tom Brady having to throw over two or three that they're not used to having or seeing him have in a couple of those other games and then you know trying to paint the rest of the performance in that regard well if you look down the overall production no you don't see high passing numbers why because it's actually been some of the biggest run performances they've had of the year those are choices so they I think people stare at the box score and see forget that oh shit they ran the ball a lot and oh shit they were very productive in the run game you don't get 200 yards of rushing and 300 yards of passing typically um, that's just how it works especially if you're you know your time of possession uh, conscious and you're trying to shorten the game so that's it's it's a strategy game and that's a big old part of it so there have been weeks in the Dolphins game on the road where they were bad period all around offensively uh, offensive passing game offensive running game defensively mid second quarter on you know that was a dog of a game uh, but the idea that you would lump all six together as if they were the same thing or some pattern of something I think that's silly uh, yeah I gotta go play by play drive by drive uh, look at the conditions in each um, I would say the Pittsburgh game is one of those examples where overall really nice uh, day passing the ball uh, I, the mistake itself was a decision the interception that Brady threw that ends up being a pick six that's that's bad decision uh, unrelated to any of these other sort of stories that are being spun in some of the other games so different stuff so there have been picks there have been issues uh, I think if you were to try to find a thread it's been that one mistake a game that is more mental than physical with with Brady uh, but again it's you're also nitpicking here in games where they're winning by 20 points. So you're just trying to guess that, hey, that would be an issue in a game where we're closer, I guess. But, again, you still have to give this team credit that they're 17, you know, 17 weeks are done now, 16 games are over. And they had a near top of league uh, 
uh, amount of giveaways. I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but it was something like, I think, 12 or something like that total. So uh, I think that's the, the, the seven or eight picks that Tom had and the four and the four fumbles. I mean, a crazy low number of giving the ball away. So the idea that his box score doesn't look the same over the last six weeks, I think part of it is, you know, the sharpness that stands, the lack of sharpness on maybe two or three throws stands out to people. But then you step back and look at the completion percentage overall, and he's still up in the high 60s in some of these instances, 70s. So I'm not going to, you know, paint a game that's in a 70% completion range or high over 65 as somehow a problem. You know, it's not a problem that you had 240 yards passing as opposed to 340 if you also rushed for 200 and you won by 20 points. Like that's, I think the, 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 the reality of this is we, we don't, we, we sort of bubble evaluate and that, that gets to be aggravating. Like, like the running game's got to have 200 and the passing game's got to have 300 and they've got to score over 30 and they have to dominate time of possession. Like all those things don't happen simultaneously. It's usually one or a few of them from the group, but they, they don't all happen at the same time. You don't get that unless you're getting, you know, Mac football games. Where, and what do you mean Mac football games? Because then you give up, you, you score 50 and give 50. So that's, that's just not what happens. So I think there's a, an unreasonableness that goes in the way we evaluate these things. And, and when you look back at uh, the performance of the offense, the performance of the team as a whole, it's pretty much right where you'd want to be. You're, you're down to about a drive less, one score less, uh, you know, in the range of two to three throws that you really could have, should have had, um, you know, that you're trying to fix. And I wouldn't call that some, you know, five alarm issue. It's just, it's, it's showing that they're less than perfect, but there's not a problem here. This is one of the best offenses in football right now. Um, you know, they, they held that title throughout the year. The Eagles were there, but the Eagles have kind of fallen off the cliff in the, with the quarterback change. But beyond that, you know, to go into a game and get 30 and not have to get it one specific way, Patriots are still there. So uh, I, I think a lot of the, the conversation with Tom just <laughs> just grew out of the fact that they put him on an injury report a month ago with an Achilles. And I think people freaked out about that and presumed something was going on with it. But I'll tell you what, there are, there are several people who I know were injured on that team, both from personal knowledge that, I, that I'm not going to divulge, but uh, and also just watching the film. I know there are guys that are dealing with stuff, and you know you can name – 10 guys who, who you can you can discern. You know what it is that they're working on or working through. You can go out and find the reps and see them favorite. Um, and you can, you know, you can find the evidence of the injury on the field or on the film. Uh, Brady's isn't so much that. I, I think he's really past the arc of where it was an issue maybe a month ago, the week that it first popped up. Fight through it, uh, you know, and now it's back to getting his body right. And, and you know, the idea that you're trying to attribute an Achilles to some of the throws that happened in the Jets game, just go look. It's not there. Uh, and, and if you do find something that's off, let's look at his feet and look at the freaking flags that are sideways at the top of the at the top of the uh the goalpost there or 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 either just look at the fact that it's zero degrees outside even did this sort of joking after the game there were people throwing the football around on the field as we were getting ready to do post stuff for Nesson and you know just grab the balls people you know ball comes flying over my way kid you know families people with the field passes after the game around the field and they're you know people were playing catch and stuff and yeah not a lot it was actually kind of a relatively clear clear day for this particular week probably because of the conditions people want to get the hell out of there and go go celebrate New Year's, but just picking up a ball and throwing it 
Just try that. You know, for anyone out there who has, you know, flag football experience or high school football experience, it was like a rock. <laughs> like, it was like, my first thought was like, is picking it up and tossing it back. It was like, how the hell did they complete anything today? How did, you know, how, how did anyone throw and or catch this damn thing? So it's one of those days, hold it independently of everything else and don't try to tie things together that aren't there. Uh, if Tom Brady were really, really, really struggling with Achilles, you'd see him favorite the way you see Kyle Van Noy favor his calf. I think that's a true picture of a guy working through something. You'd see him, you know, pick it up, right? you know, not push off through it, not bounce off the toes. Uh, there, there's ways, and it's, it's hard to just describe through a podcast what it is you'd be looking for and seeing. Uh, if, if you had an Achilles, now, I had Achilles tendonitis. I had issues with that throughout my career. I wouldn't say throughout my career, but when I was having toe problems, when I had my reconstruction on my toe, I started to have a lot of planner and a lot of Achilles stuff. I never tore one, so I'd, I've never been to that extent, but obviously now there is Brady. But I know what it's like when that thing's tight and you've got it taped a certain way and, and the way you sort of compensate and move. And I'm, I'm staring at the film. I'm looking for Brady to find it, and I don't see it. So, uh, you know, there's that's just – we're way past the point where it was a new injury and you're into the maintenance phase, and you can find people who have that injury and watch them favorite. It may be a you know a two out of ten thing, but again, guys, every person that's in the NFL right now is dealing with something. The idea that you know a pass or two or three that you saw didn't go the way you're used to seeing it go in last week's game, the Jazz game, that's that's conditions. The Achilles ain't that. And sometimes, like I mentioned in whatever it was like three weeks ago. Or sometimes people play bad. You know, sometimes just people have an off week. Uh, so I think trying to every time you see something not completed, say Achilles, it's just not smart. There's evidence and ways to find it if it is. If you see a someone not push off through it, you know, not not do the things you're used to seeing them do. Favorite pull up on it, uh, slide differently as they move in the pocket. I look for it. You know, we tried to do the CSI on that last week, and it wasn't there. And, and I feel like it's kind of dumb to, to try to do this last game that same week when there are, you know, it's like the pebble on the 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 sand hill. Like, there's so many other things uh, that would would better account for it. The freaking conditions were nuts. <laughs> you know, the, the, the flag things at the top of the goalposts are sideways, and the ball is a freaking, you know, it's made of glass on that day. It's just, that, that's why. So, you can monitor it as it's going forward, but I think the Achilles thing is is a rear view thing as much as any of the other number of injuries that are on that particular roster. So it never got to the point where you had to miss a single snap of football. Never once. So that ain't it. So just, you know, learn from it. So moving on, uh, what I want to do here, and I, I think I started to introduce the Jets game, but let's just kind of go through some of the biggest themes that happen in that game and how they connect. And, you know, maybe some of, the, maybe, maybe some of it doesn't, but at least I think it helps you. Look at who they are at the last time you got to see them before they reconfigure themselves for the playoff run. Um, one of the things that I did notice as far as the passing game was that there was some in-game learning that happened as far as driving throws not working. And I would say a driving throw is when you sort of see Tom take uh, almost like the the javelin step, you know, like he's going to stride, stride and step into it and put it on a rope and try to beat, you know, get the ball to get there before the coverage is there in a, in a tight coverage situation. They missed on a couple of those early. One of them was a James Devlin, just a quick out route where you just, you know, you know, the coverage is tight and you're trying to throw it about, you know, 20 yards on a line out to outside the numbers and just beat the throw or beat the coverage there. That is really tough to do in those kind of conditions, and we saw a miss on those a couple times early. Not to mention the balls moving, you know, because of the wind and and you know all that stuff. 
they tried it and then kind of got away from it. Um, and uh, one of the th- they they actually that that first drive of the game was a big Amendola drive. And you go back and look at the couple that they missed on, and the ones that they go back and hit with Danny. It was sort of a, okay now tempo throws where you know, if you would think of you know a fat you need a fastball to get in the out route. Uh, you need. You know, I don't know if changeup is the right word, but something that's not a not a fade where there's a high arc on the ball, but sort of the mid thing where you're kind of tempoing it down there. You're you're throwing it more on timing and trying to slide it in as opposed to throw that dart. And they hit on a lot more of those. Some of them were sit routes with Danny on the inside. Uh, you know, just getting him to work in and out of the zone, sit down. Tom can push that one in because it's back inside the hash and numbers. That's probably the biggest lesson from from bad weather stuff. Get the football back inside the hash and numbers. Uh, those are the easier throws. You know, the defenses are smart to push things to the outside. We did that against Peyton Manning years ago uh, in that snow game with you know Ty Law had all the interceptions. It was really really hard to fend inside out. Make the throws go outside the numbers. Everyone has trouble with that on those kind of days. It's easier to the tempo throw, the 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 sort of mid throw uh, as far as velocity on the outside because, but you have to be right on the timing of that because you know it allows coverage sometimes to get back but you're usually throwing those against off coverage or some sort of zone and you're just trying to throw it over something and fit it in but if you're having to beat man with a ball in a line outside the numbers in those shitty conditions it's really really hard to do so anyway i thought uh, the adjustments they made in game to at least make this palatable uh, as things went on in the passing game was to try some more of the tempo stuff and then some of the downfield balls we saw those one was dropped that would have been a huge play that obviously dramatically changes your 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 box score and your stat sheet and will make you think differently of things they also got a number of obviously downfield penalties that that helped uh, move the sticks as much as the the passing game could do itself organically so that was important as well um, but again, just sort of a mishmash of a game uh, as far as passing. So you're kind of just trying to piece together things. I thought there were moments where they did learn from incompletions where they're trying to drive it on a line to something 15 or 18 yards with coverage tight. And just that particular completed ball was really hard to come by. And it's not like that's going to be you know worked upon and gotten better for the next time. I think it's just more trying to go away from that kind of look. You know, if 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 your offense allows you to, and you got enough enough other options, and I you know I think they do. Um, so anyway, moving on here, I, one of the things um, that I think we can sort of talk here in big picture about what happened with the season. Brandon Cooks has a huge year as far as stats. You know, big big yardage year over a thousand yards has a good amount of uh, touchdowns. Don't have the stats in front of me. I think it was like seven or something like that. But has a good number. Clearly, he's a nice addition to the offense. I think his stats. And again, I shouldn't be doing this without actually having it in front of me, but. I think his stats are sit right around what Julian Edelman usually does, but I think we all know just from a, a naked eye test, they clearly get there a different way, right? There's it's clearly a different kind of wide receiver, and one of the the things that I've sort of postulated, I don't know if that's a word, or just sort of proposed throughout the year that hey, maybe at some point they'll get this guy into that. Antonio Brown mode where there's as much catch and run with him as there is winning downfield and it just never happened and I think we've learned I've had to learn myself uh, throughout the year that that just isn't the strength it's probably never going to happen that way Um, he is a good route runner but his kind of routes he doesn't do the whole tree sharp and that's that's more of a Julian Edelman thing he's a guy that is route master everywhere Danny's kind of that way too Uh, even Malcolm Mitchell who we'll we'll talk to a little bit about later and really maybe more of a next week's show as you're 
sort of getting this group together for who they're actually going to be playing where Malcolm will fit. But Malcolm is more of an outside build up the stem and then come back hard, you know, really does a nice job getting in and out of breaks and hiding if he's coming in out of breaks by not sort of, you know, or at least quickly drops his hips. You know, he doesn't telegraph. And I think Brandon Cooks is not the sharpest guy in and out of breaks. Troy Brown, one of the best we have ever had, I've ever seen. Anyway, at that kind of stuff of hiding what he's doing at the top of the stem, uh, you know, the top part of a route where you either come back or break out up, whatever. So, you know, that's not Brandon Cooks' thing. He's he's. There are certain routes. He runs a quick slant really well. He runs the dig pretty good. A dig is a, you know, pushing up the field 15 or 20 yards and running straight in, an in cut, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there are certain routes he does well, uh, but the deep comeback, you know, there are sharper guys on the roster and, and you know, that, that just do that better. So uh, I think the catch and run thing is the thing that I was selling hard throughout the year, just hoping they'd go that route, but he does not have the smoothest hands on the team. He, he double catches some stuff, and sometimes when he's running back towards the ball, he struggles with that ball a little bit more. And usually you want the really – you got to have a guy that snags it every time if he's going to be your screen guy, your look guy, because, you know, tacklers are running at you. Sometimes the blocking elements are coming back in your face between the two. You have to have your most sure-handed guys in those situations. So it's not a knock on him. It's just kind of understanding what their strengths are. It's not even calling it a weakness. It's just not – that's not his best scenario. So you learn that. I think he's a great speed player if you get the ball in his hand, but he's not elusive. And I think we've learned that and – you know, that would be a separator, obviously, from a guy like Antonio Brown. He's extremely elusive. So it's different, and we've seen them have a lot of success with the reverse stuff with, with Brandon Cooks. Got got at least one or two of those in the, uh, in the game here uh, against the Jets, and that's a nice little part of the offense, but that's different than catch and run. Like, look pass means just Brady snaps it, turns, throws it to him, and he's got to make the first guy miss, and then the blocking elements arrive later, and he's got to be elusive guy. That's, that's not him as much as... Maybe a tear screen where he's coming back to the ball. Doesn't always catch that as cleanly as other guys, but you know, at least he doesn't have to make the first guy miss. It's blocking elements and then just his speed. So it's not that he's not a good screen guy. It's just there are certain kind of screens I think that work better for him than all. Uh, and it's not that he's not a good route runner. It's just there are certain routes he runs better than the whole tree. Um, obviously, we know he builds on guys, but as good as anyone in the league, he's a downfield guy. Um, you know, and I think it, you know, there are portions of the downfield route tree that he does very well. The double move stuff, pretty good. Uh, you know, so I think the knocks he gets on certain things and, and it should never be broad brushed because there are portions of it that are true. Doesn't mean he sucks at it, it just means that okay, they find out if there's you know, fifteen routes here, he's really good at six to eight of them. And those are the ones we're gonna major in. And it isn't just go route guy. Um, it's just but a lot of the ones he's better at are vertical, and that's okay. So again, I, I the overall message here is super positive net or super net positive player. Uh, but we learn more about what he does best, and I think it, it it'll it'll be heightened even more so when he's not you know, the number one target each and every down from the wide receiver group when it's Danny and Chris and Malcolm Mitchell and Gronk and the full complement of backs. I think that's when you'll see Brandon Cook shine. I think you'll, it'll, you know, in those situations where you have a full complement of guys out there, him going out and giving a five to seven ball game with over a hundred yards and one of those big plays and a touchdown or two though, that, I think that's when it comes forward most because you lure people out of any kind of over the top coverage on him. You're not so reliant on, Hey man, he's got, 
got to hit a deep comeback at 15 or, you know, at 12 back to eight at the sticks or we don't get a first down. The Patriots don't get a first down. I think he's, you're better when that isn't the thing you have to have. Obviously, so um, you know. It, I think uh, maybe that would sound like a lot of pretzeling to try to try to make a case for Brandon. I just know that there's some sentiment out there that, uh, that I read on Twitter. People talking to me about this kind of stuff about you know what what are the overall thoughts here? What's he good at? What's he not good at? And obviously, he's productive. So that's the number one thing. Guy has shown up you know most weeks and he's been reliable. I think that's probably even the biggest thing there. He's his health has been good throughout the year and that's that's a pretty tremendous thing. Not just ability but availability. So anyway, that that's sort of a big synopsis on on some of the things you actually saw in that game, but then just period who I think Brandon Cooks has been for this offense and it's been a good thing. And it's a da- it's a damn shame that you didn't get to see him with Julian Edelman on the same team. This offense could have been historical wasn't because you know they they got banged up throughout the year and that's that's the big challenge to have in sort of history breaking kind of group um one thing that i think should be noted here though is it's a player that i like from film not from box scores because no one could like him from box scores solely but i think phil dorsett has gotten sort of a a bad rap for lack of you know productivity and one of the things that i notice if you go back and just you know coaches copy especially when you do the wide angle view that dude runs his routes and gets open a good amount, uh, but he's not highly targeted. So it, it always reminds me of sort of the the old metaphor analogy. I think this is a, a, a Romeo Cornell thing. Rack would talk about, you know, the car being the car that it is regardless of whether it's being driven, something to that effect. You know, it's like it doesn't – something doesn't stop being a Corvette because it sits in the garage. Uh, it's, you know, you become more aware that it's a Corvette and it's the, the horsepower and all that stuff when someone actually takes out and drives it. But, and that, and that simply, it's not to say that Philip Dorsett is, you know, the only thing keeping him from leading the NFL and receiving or something is Tom throwing it more to him. No, but I think he could be a very, very good complimentary guy in this offense, especially a year from now, uh, from what I've seen, uh, if he's targeted more. And I think there are plenty more, or if the plays are designed to get him open more. I think we're at a stage now, especially maybe in the last, I don't know, I'm guessing here, four to eight weeks, whatever, the second half of the season, where you see him purposefully looked for two to three times a game, maybe. You know, and at least the one where it's like, okay, that play, he dropped back and he was trying to find him. He was going to him. But it's much rare, more rare when he drops back. Tom's got four out in the pattern, fifth, it's a check down. And Phillip is not where he's looking. It's just not where he's looking. That doesn't mean that he didn't get separation. I mean, it was he wasn't open. Uh, so I put all that out there to say that for what I was sort of alluding to, to what I thought I we might see from Brandon Cooks, from the pure steep speed standpoint, I think Philip Dorsett gets you that is much more elusive once the ball's in his hands, is much better at the screen stuff, is much better at the look pass. Look pass being just turn and throw it, you have off coverage, you have to make that first guy miss before pursuit gets there. I think Philip Dorsett is a notch above Brandon Cooks in that you know, niche role. And I think that gives him a lot of value, uh, but... Unfortunately for Dorsett, he sits in an offense where he's like the seventh or eighth option. You know, uh, and not, not on a particular play. There aren't that many eligible receivers, but you know what I mean. Like if you're looking down the roster of guys who are going to get balls this week, he's just not up there. So I think he's going to be a really exciting guy to watch where it goes this coming off season, which is you know not relevant for this upcoming game or not even relevant for the last month that we would be reviewing here, but more so to soar, more more so to what he would be with an off season with Tom. And because he was just sort of airlifted into the season and had to learn on the run, I thought the expectation should have remained low. So if you want to go out and do some sort of you know trade analysis on whether he was or wasn't worth it, 
give him an offseason and understand that he is in an offense where he may be doing very well and only being targeted twice. (laughs) That's just what's going on there. You know, there's Gronk, and there's this running game, and there's Brandon Cooks who makes the bigger cheese, and there's Danny Amendola as a third-down target. You know, it's just not a place where that next guy is going to be a high-targeted guy. But I think he can move himself up the ladder with a full offseason, and it'll be an interesting uh, competition maybe between he and, and Kenny Britt to see who gets it first, you know, throughout the course of a long offseason, because I believe they're both still under contract. And Dorsett's, I believe, is, I looked this up earlier on Spotrack, um, something like 1-5 is the cap number for next year, which is very manageable, very manageable. Uh, you'll feel good about that, that he can he can have growth in your group. And, you know, I, I really, it, it's hard to, to go find snaps where you're like, okay, that guy running that route, whoever that is, he's not getting open. Or, oh, that guy running that route. Uh, you know, who was then targeted, didn't run a good route, and or that guy can't catch the ball, or something like that. I, you don't see that with Dorsett. He does some good things, and, and one of the other things that you notice is because he's the air quote speed guy, he's put in the pattern a lot of times as a runoff, and that's frustrating as well. You're doing the runoff to grab safety or to clear out the, the corner coverage that's on you so they can do something underneath uh, with the tight end, with the backs, with another receiver on an end cut. The runoff route guy isn't usually getting targeted, so you're there to create space. It's a team player kind of role. So when the team player is doing the team player role, I think it doesn't make a ton of sense to judge them through then their box score because that's not what they're doing. In a different role, maybe you could do more. And I really think there is more there when I watch them on film. But, again, judging a guy, if Tom throws into it or not, whether or not he's doing well, isn't always the fairest way. So he'll be an interesting guy to watch in the offseason. I've liked it when he's gotten the ball in his hands. He's shown more elusiveness, I think, than uh, as many, really as much as anyone on the team on that look stuff. Um, catch and run guy he can get some stuff done so we'll see where his role goes or grows but as you move into the playoffs now i'm presuming this may shrink because hogan comes back uh you know hogan comes back malcolm mitchell may not have a role it might be harder for him to get on the field so we will see but i think he's proven his merit in the event that he's out there so uh don't listen to anyone who says that there's been some sort of issue with him i just don't think the tape verifies that at all all. Now, moving forward, um, I, I mentioned guys that I think you can tell much differently than Brady in this whole Achilles story. You know, And again, I, I also say that from the perspective of a former player myself and kind of knowing how they handle, I, not IR, but just the injury reports. If you've gotten treatment of any kind on something, you're going on the report. That doesn't mean you're not playing it at a relatively fully functional level. So uh, I remember a year where, what was it, my elbow? I think my elbow, I was on... I believe it was my elbow uh, because I had to get treatment daily. I needed surgery for the thing after the year. Um, I had a bunch of bone spurs on, my, spurs on my elbow. I've got these little train tracks on my elbow now in my later life. Uh, but, you know, I, I went on with it early in the year, and I played throughout the entire season. Uh, I had like a modified sort of workout program with the team during the year where I would, you know, I didn't have to do the heavy chain bench press stuff that we do. The bench press is like, you know, you know normal bench you see at the meatheads <laughs> at the, uh, you know, at the gym or whatever, but then they put the chains around the edge, and that gives you a little extra resistance at the top. Well, that's where it really hurt for me, that little extra extension. Uh, I didn't want to load up that part. I wanted to keep it fresh, 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 and then i go out and play. So I wore like a sleeve on my elbow um, that you, you know, if you remember back then, I highly doubt you do, but I do. I guess <laughs> I had to wear it where I wore sort of almost like the Gronk thing. You know, like Gronk's wearing the more mechanical one, the Donjoy deal. I was just wearing the neoprene, but I wore a really thick, hard neoprene to help me with, to give a little extra 
extra boost to the extension because that part hurt me. But w- w- did I have any more problem with a, a tight end or a tackle or you know doing my job on special teams? No, not really at all. I mean, it was technically injured, yes, but cared for the right way. It was 95% functional. So y- if you were watching me, you probably couldn't have told. And, but yet, I'm on the injury report each and every week. So that's, that's kind of how it works. So there's the week of the incident and the tentativeness that each player has with it. But once you clear that hurdle and, and, you know, I'm again, referencing sort of Brady's Achilles here or, or any of the other stuff, you're kind of talking about a technicality, quite frankly. Um, and, and Van Noy's calf is one that I mentioned because I thought I noticed him several times picking it up when, when the pile got near him, you know, not wanting to lay in on that thing and push off of it. You know, I kind of noticed something where I've dealt with that myself, not with the calf so much, but more just actually my old Achilles or the planner stuff where y- you, you notice a guy favoring it uh, a little. I mean, being a warrior and playing through the thing, I'm not knocking Van Noy at all. He's, he worked his way back up. He got out there. He was functional. He did a good job. There was no time where he was getting beat because of it. But you can see it's not 100%. You can see a guy's not laying on the thing and just blasting off of it or you know, willing to dive into piles with it. Sometimes people hold that back, and that usually tells me, ah, okay, I can see it. I can see just a, a slight discomfort, you know, and that's normal. So I would say there's one issue there that you can see that's discernible. And I think in part, uh, Van Noy got some outside reps in the Jets game, but they also moved him back inside. I sent a tweet out here uh, earlier in the show. Or I sent a tweet out, sorry, earlier this morning, um, showing a configuration that the Patriots used. I think it was either early third quarter or late second after they'd kind of said, oh, hey, let's get James Harrison more involved. And they went to the old 3-4 look, the old regular defense where you have three down defensive linemen and four linebackers, two on the outsides and two inside. That means now you have two inside linebackers as opposed to one Mike linebacker who's kind of over center. And that has been uh, when there was the one linebacker over center, that was Atlanta Roberts. And, and then... I like this configuration better where Van Noy is now the weak side linebacker and Roberts is the Mike linebacker in a 3-4. So that means the Mike linebacker is not over center. The middle linebacker is not over center. He's slid over to the tight end side over the guard. And then the weak side linebacker is over the weak side guard, the guard that's away from the tight end. So in those situations, I kind of like it because it defines Landon Roberts' role much more. He just hammerheads right away staying on the strong side. He doesn't have to play both left and right of center where the ball goes. And it allows Van Noy, you know, to kind of be the weak side guy who's kind of out of traffic. You know, you don't get a lot of direct runs as the weak side guy. You're kind of in chase mode usually. You're the cutback player a lot of times if the play starts to go play side and cuts back to you. Or you're a little more in open space for coverage reasons and things like that. Or maybe they rush you or whatever, but the Patriots don't do a ton of that. But when you're sort of managing an injury back, I like that also because it gives them a defined side of the ball. Much of the benefit of having Landon as a defined side of the ball in a 3-4, it defines it for him as well. You can imagine... If, say, that things bother him just a little bit, still, you know, say it's, I hate the percentage stuff, but, you know, it's not in the 90s. It's it's good enough to be out there. You can handle it and keep it from getting re-injured, but you know that you're managing something. It's taping it up. It's warming it on the sideline, doing the stick stuff, all that stuff, all the rehab to the week, and it's something that you don't feel comfortable laying your full body weight on or doing a long jump off of or something. Uh, but, 
in those situations, if you're managing something, coming back to a 4-3 middle linebacker where you're right over the ball and having to sideline to sideline, that could be tougher because you, you may not feel as comfortable pushing off one direction or the other. And, you know, Van Noy we know can pop to the outside, which is where we originally came here from when we came from Detroit. He can still do that as well, but you don't have to necessarily – have him be an edge-setting guy. He can do it. He did it a handful times against Jets. But I think your better guys, considering their current condition, to just simply set edges now become Trey Flowers and James Harrison. And your rotating guy can be Eric Lee. And Lee, who really struggled with that particular part of the game, uh, the scheme run stuff, where one guy's down, someone's around. In other words, the blockers down and around with a tight end and tackle, or you're getting you know crack blocked or sort of if by a near wide receiver, someone who's in a trips or bunch or something just outside of you. That kind of stuff, sort of the influence blocking from the outside or sort of scheme stuff where they're exchanging stuff inside of him and you know someone's coming out that's not directly over him. Lee has really struggled with that stuff, but and that's not unusual for a young player. That, that's something that really takes experience and fortunately he doesn't seem to be learning on that part at at the rate they would want that doesn't mean he doesn't have value clearly the guy's made a ton of plays in these opportunities he's got but it's nice to have the veteran arrive in James Harrison because he handles that stuff so much better Trey Flowers handles that stuff so much better he can stand up and play outside linebacker in the in the base stuff and then put his hands back down and be the best one of the best edge rushers in in sub when it when it's that time of game Uh, so I think this new little configuration is is the absolute ideal situation. The, the addition of James Harrison uh, to be a stable, edge-setting, do-what-you-got-to-do guy is helpful because of the development of Lee, uh, sort of mitigating his role a little bit. Uh, or you know, minimizing it a little bit, which is a good thing. It allows him to thrive at the thing he really does best, which is rush the pass around third down. Uh, and also because Van Noy to me doesn't look like a, hey, just go out and play 70 snaps as the edge guy and rush again. That, 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 I don't know if he's quite there yet anyway. So you get a more stable presence, presence back at the will, allow Landon to slide to a, the role you want him in, strong side and regular. And remembering, you always have the option of activating David Harris and plugging him into one of those two spots as well. Really salty veteran guy, can come in and do it. Hasn't been asked a lot of him this year, but I think in a a moment's notice he can come in and do it at a really high level alongside Alain or alongside Van Noy if they choose to go that way. So, And we've done all that little talk around the 3-4 stuff, and we haven't even mentioned Marquise Flowers, which is his role has, has... really uh, gone up, and I think he really becomes more the sub-linebacker, the guy that's the fastest, the guy that can move around, the guy that from the -the off-the-ball position can rush, the guy that can uh, disco, disguise a little bit up in the line and become a part of games. He got a sack last week on a three-man game where he was on the edge, jams the tight end, swings around through the middle, and gets a sack there, Bryce Petty. So uh, Flowers' role, his uh, Marquise Flowers' role has grown, expanded. He's done a lot, or he's done really well with the opportunities he's been given. But he now becomes like an interesting piece there because, you know, he could potentially be an edge guy in 3-4 instead of Trey or James. Uh, but he doesn't have to be, you know. And he is, I think they're really at an ideal situation here now where they've got about five or six bodies that they can move around that really fit nicely in the roles they need them to do. None of which are do all the roles. And that's, you know, that's why people sometimes downgrade them. But that's not what matters. That's not what... What, what really what really you want at this time of year. You've got a lot of pieces that do some certain things very well for you, and you've figured out what those are, and you can run those fronts and run them well. You've repped them uh, and had success in them. So, yeah, I, I like the group. I look at it and say, 
similar to that tweet that I sent out earlier that shows sort of the back-end configuration. Trey at one side, James at the other. Those are great edges. <laughs> those are great edges. You can't ask for more. So is that a front seven problem? You tell me. No, that's a, those are great edges. And you go back to Malcolm Brown at the nose, and you hear this often. You know, oh, not, they don't have talent in the front seven. That's a first-round pick from Texas. That's like an all-American guy. Uh, you tell me how the hell that's not talent. I mean, that's talent. There aren't, there aren't many that are better than doing it as Malcolm does it on the inside. So that's talent. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Now, Lawrence Guy and Ricky Jean-Francois uh, are more your uh, role players. That they don't, They're not going to pass rush and get a bunch of stuff that way. This isn't you know J.J. Watt at a 3-4 end. It's win the tackle, win the gap, play the technique perfectly, Always win your role. Those guys are good at that. They don't dominate anyone. They don't throw guys out of the way and end up with negative plays, although Lawrence did have a nice negative play in last week's game. But uh, those are really stable ends. Those aren't guys who get collapsed down. Those aren't guys who big run plays go through their area. It just doesn't happen. So you got to feel good about the two of them. And this, to me, is not even accounting for Allen Branch. Where if Allen Branch is healthy and back, he doesn't have to dominate like we saw him do a year ago. He can just come in and rotate at one of those two end spots while Malcolm does his deal over in the nose. And, you know, he's the guy that gives the best push of any of the four that you have. Does he mean he separates and wins his gap as consistently as Guy and Francois? I don't know. I don't know necessarily. That's been up and down with Branch this year. But, man, he's definitely a positive, a net positive presence if he's out there. But he doesn't have to go wire to wire anymore because of the find that they got in in, in both Guy and, and, and Ricky Jean Francois. You know, I always struggle to, put, to spit that out. So I think that configuration there is really, really positive, especially when we're not even counting Adam Butler, where he's the add in body that really rushes well, has a much lower, uh, lesser role in the, uh, in the front as far as regular defense. But he's a lighter body, very, very active. He's a good guy to have that when sort of it changes into more passing down stuff to come in. And again, in all that stuff I just talked about, we didn't even mention Dietrich twice. So it allows Dietrich to have a little bit more of a, a modest regular defense role. He can definitely play one of those two, three, four ends if he needs to, but doesn't have to. You get the two bigs, the Ricky Jean Francois and Lawrence Guy, in sort of the Bobby Hamilton, Seymour-ish kind of body types, holding down those edges. And when you get more of the run stuff or true 4-3, which they will sometimes pop in and out of, and you need a more true defensive end, the 6-6, six, 6-7 six, six, guys long, that's wise. So I think what they have now on this roster is a lot of flexibility because of the roles that they've sort of tinkered with throughout the year. So I look at that group and say, man, there's, it's not like you're, you're want for anything. It's not like you're looking and saying, man, if we just had X, um, you know, they do not have a middle linebacker like Dante Hightower that can go sideline to sideline. They don't. They don't. I mean, we, we all get that. Dante was their best defensive player at that kind of stuff. So in the absence of that, they play more defined role type fronts, and they've got the people to do those really, really well. So, you know, it is what it is. I think you, you do lose the playmaking from Hightower. Um, so you'll notice, obviously, with the Patriots sort of uh, over the course of the season, they do not have that big, you know, the big, huge turnover. They, they were positive in turnover differential, one of the higher in that in the league, but their takeaways were down this year. And I think that's, a, you know, Dante with the four fumbles, with the pick or two, a strip sack or two, that affects it, right? Uh, so it's understandable that you lose your biggest playmaker. That portion goes down. 
But with the rest of it, just the can you play your role front side in a run defense, I think they're they're set pretty good with or without him. Um, you know, this team will be disgusting if he comes back healthy the next year and they keep a lot of these guys continuing under contract because they've started to decrease the roles of some of the young dudes and they've proven they can play. So it'll be fun to watch this team going forward. But I think relative to what they have going down the stretch, uh, it's a pretty, pretty strong group. Front seven problems, pfft doesn't exist. So next thing, let's go here. Um, uh, One of the things that you should notice from these bad weather games, and it's not to sort of uh, hyper critique anything that happened in that one, but just sort of notice the transition that the Patriots did in game because of the outlandish conditions that were in that game last week against the Jets. They went to a lot more three-man routes. So what that means is, you know, you got five eligibles, right? You're blocking with six. You got a quarterback and then blocking with five. You got five potential eligibles out in the route. Spread offense, that means all five go out, right? Tom stands in the gun. They protect with five, the minimal amount you can, and then everyone goes out, right? That's spread offense generally. Um, they were doing three-man, which means that they six-man protected much more. In other words, keep the tight end in almost all the time or keep the back end tight end and call it seven. But what – and then that you only got three guys out in the pattern. The fourth ends up being a later check down dude. But I think what the Patriots transition to in-game, and I kind of noticed, it's like, damn, you know, Gronk is not being targeted. And if you watch some of the coverages that the Jets chose early, some of it was zone, but with a zone and a lean, I would call it. Like zone and a little extra attention to Gronk just to, to – indicate to Tom don't come here you know trying to show him the 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 safety and the 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 rolling player under him don't throw to this guy please (laughs) go somewhere else with it and then in the man situations where they would man him underneath and top him or even sometimes bring the safety down and in and out him with the outside linebacker or whoever it was over Gronk but there was a purposeful effort to me uh early in that game to show Brady don't come here and I thought the Patriots made the transition in game, at least on a handful of series, where it's like, okay, screw it. Uh, if they're going to double them, let's let them double a blocker. You know, Gronk, keep them in and see if they know enough to change out of coverages where we're now doubling someone who's blocking. You know, what a wasted asset. So they were sending, in a lot of these instances in this bad weather passing game shit, three guys out of the pattern. Three out of the pattern. You don't expect much from that, quite frankly, especially if you overload the coverage. If you don't bring extra, if you don't bring a fifth or sixth to rush, you got more bodies back there, and it's pretty hard to win in the passing game with just three out. And quite frankly, the uh, you know the 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 back wasn't getting out a lot, and they were keeping them in for these sort of ugly cold weather protection kind of shit. So, um, you know, I half wonder if they'll look at that and say, how can we get people more more people out, or maybe we don't. Maybe we just come in and out of this when we let, let Gronk release. We don't let Gronk release. We kind of play this in and out game when he's going to be used. Um, and roll from there. But uh, it was, I thought, something that you could detect that, like, okay, this is a change. This happened for a reason. Um, you know, maybe in part it's to put it on film. Who knows? But I, I think obviously you had no playoff game and the team's going to expect him to have Kronk out in the pattern more. But if the, if the weather sucks again, who knows? So anyway, that was that was one little things I wanted to one, one little thing I wanted to make you aware of that was going on in that game. That may be just unique to that game, or maybe it was put on tape to make other people think. Who knows? Or also just to manage Crock's health, make sure he came into the playoffs healthy without targeting him a bunch of times in a crappy game against the Jets. So um, one thing that you know, this is the tip of the cap moment of the day. Demario Davis uh, for the Jets, their middle linebacker. You know, the younger guy, obviously in part, which helped David Harris make his way here to New England as an older guy. Um, This is why I say tip of the cap 
that dude is very good. And he's not a guy who gets a lot of the, the, the props. And maybe I notice him more because I watch it as a linebacker and I'm watching sort of his reads from the inside and, you know, how I'm trying to pick through some of the Patriots run scheme stuff and some of the people that spoiled some of the better looks they had or better opportunities they had. Demero Davis was good, man. He is quick to the, he is quick to his reads. He's decisive. He knifes in on stuff, makes a lot of tackles, makes a lot of plays, screws up plays where it's otherwise sort of well designed. Um, and you get one sort of fly in the ointment and, and it can prevent something from going somewhere. Demario Davis uh, deserves a lot of respect. As I watch back that game with the Patriots, I can imagine you know Coach Belichick pointing him out as well. He used to do this all the time with, hey, this is a guy we got to block. This is a guy that can spoil it. He'll spoil your, spoil your screen game. He'll spoil your your scheme running game where it's you know you're trying to pull and get someone out in the hole, and he's already beat you to the hole. He's that guy. He made a lot of plays. Um, and make all the plays. Obviously, uh, I think there were a number of times where he was the one who needed to run down Dion and some of those flat routes, and Dion beat him. Dion Lewis. Uh, so he wasn't a hundred percent kind of game. But I think just from the how a guy plays in the run game, that's sort of a, a salute for me. I was watching him and really impressed by him. And you know, as an opponent, uh, Patriots fans should kind of know who's out there. That's the real threat. So when you don't get stuff, it's not because you screwed up necessarily. Sometimes it's because they're pretty good too. And Demario Davis, I'd definitely call him one of them. So. Um, last thing uh, here sort of as a going away point on that game. Um, I did notice this and I think it's something that is a huge, uh, a huge thing of value for the Patriots to get two weeks of work now, both a bye week full week of practice, which as we're recording the show has essentially happened. It's basically over now. Uh, but the next thing would be, uh, the week of work uh, leading up to whomever the opponent is to finer tune what you want from James Harrison in the defense. And why they say that is because kind of what I suspected, and I think I put it on last week's show, that the Pittsburgh Steelers offense outside linebackers are super duper aggressive. They often kind of don't even set the edge. They play the tight end square. They'll play a tackle that's pulling out on them square. And sometimes stuff bounces and the safeties are meant to fill or either the linebackers scrape like Shazier and scrape over the top of them and are meant to make the tackles outside. Patriots really don't do that. And there were a couple times on film where I noticed Harrison maybe playing it a little overly aggressive, kind of in a Pittsburgh-y kind of style, uh, especially as the backside guys. They say, you know, say he's the right outside linebacker and the play's going away from him to the left. I saw him fold over and chase behind the line of scrimmage where I think in this scheme, and I don't have the call obviously, but he needs to stay backside more. And I half wonder that because I want to kind of alert the fans that are watching, you know, in the event one of these things breaks in a playoff game, at least we talked about it. Uh, Over-aggressiveness on the backside is something an offense will look for. So if a guy sort of gets nosy or his eyes are on the wrong side of the field and he's starting to chase the play from back behind the line of scrimmage. That's when the big cutbacks happen. So if you happen to catch the Bills, which I don't think they will, uh, but, you know, maybe Derrick Henry is a cutback guy if it happens to be Tennessee or definitely Kareem Hunt. But that's something they'll target you with. And, hey, this isn't me just noticing this. I know a 1,000% that the Patriots linebackers coaches will be saying something to this effect and Matt Patricia. But making sure the backside guy isn't overly aggressive because it's this this is the whole do-your-job place. Didn't hurt him. You know, none of those runs wound back to the backside against the Jets. But it was something that I saw that happened a few times of like, okay, that's not a guy necessarily screwing up his defense. He just doesn't probably hasn't registered that they do it a little different way here now. And you don't want to get gashed on that down the road. So 
look for that. His aggressiveness is his strength and can be a weakness that teams come after if you're overly aggressive. There were a couple times also where Harrison plows up the field. You know, he's he's a bull, and then that creates a, a draw lane. You know, it creates another lane where the back can fit underneath it. You don't ever want your outside linebackers too far up the field past the quarterback. I shouldn't say you don't ever because the Steelers allow them to do that. You know, you know they get real aggressively up the field, but the Patriots don't do that. So part of it's adjusting to how they do things here. That'll be coached upon. Say, hey, man, when you get to even, if you get even, they're leaving. That's what the Patriots say. If you get even with a quarterback, yeah, he's going to bounce outside you or he's going to step up underneath you. So get to even level, get down the line. That applies for both the running and passing game. So anyway, moving on here, let's kind of get out of the Jets game. I think that's enough sort of the big picture stuff there. Uh, at least this, let's, let's, I'm sorry, well, I should at least do this portion. I'll give you my guys that, that really deserved their own tip of the cap for the, for the Patriots. Obviously, Deion Lewis is an easy one. I put the tweet out there about him getting the first down where he had three guys out in space in front of him and the sideline. Nowhere to go. It's not Dion breaking ankles. It's Dion putting his head down and getting extra yards. Belichick loves that stuff. Danny Amendola in the passing game as a, or I'm sorry, is the run game as a blocker. Um, I think uh, uh, Allen, uh, Dwayne Allen, is a blocker, a big asset, really doing nice work. Cam Fleming as a blocker, really doing nice work in the running game, uh, especially in his double teams in his climb up to the second level. I think he's Cam is more athletic than people give him credit for. Now Cam did give up the sack in the game that pushed him out of field goal range last week, so it's not perfect. And you know, I'm not claiming that he's playing at a you know at an All Pro level or a Pro Bowl level like Marcus Cannon you know has done more recently, but I think he's he's definitely been a net positive uh, to have him out there and. You know how they decide to do that is later when Waddle gets more healthy. That'll be a question mark here going forward. But really, I think both of them give you a definite net positive at that at that right tackle spot. So there hasn't been some precipitous drop off. That's that's still a good spot. They run behind them. They do great work. Uh, Cam Fleming is is a guy that deserves the tip of the cap. Um, and I would go back to uh, the offensive uh, stuff and say, hey, Shaq Mason, man, I don't know how that guy didn't make the Pro Bowl. Um, you know, the, the many vowels guy for the Raiders, I always blank on his name, got the right guard spot. And I'm sitting there thinking that wasn't an offense that performed anywhere near the level of this one. And I highly doubt even as good as that dude is that if you just spot shouted and play after play after play that he was better than Shaq. I have a hard time seeing anyone being better than what he played at this year consistently over the course of the 16. So I thought Shaq Mason got a little bit screwed there, but it is what it is. You don't play for Pro Bowls, but uh, he's definitely playing at that kind of level, and he's a guy that you can comfortably run behind as he doubles and climbs. You can screen game behind him. He pass protects pretty well. The only chink in the armor has been some of the passing off of games, and it hasn't been easy for him in part because he's had three different bodies play next to him at right tackle. So part of it is how well do they play with one another and maybe it helps him to have a stable presence there if it's Cam from, you know, Cam Fleming from here till the end. Who knows? But I think uh, Guy deserves a big tip of the cap because he's been very, very good for them. Um, and James Devlin, you know, I think one of the things that's, that's unusual that I don't know as I watch the December football, their willingness to play a really decent amount of this 21 personnel, which is the old pro style. Literally, the formation is called pro, pro left and pro right, where you have a fullback in the backfield with a back, a tight end in location, another in locations right next to the tackle box. He's hand on the line next to either the left or right tackle, and then one wide receiver extended to either the two sides or they're together and you call it twins. That's that's 
I mean, that's they're running pro. <laughs> they're running pro, and the running game is like fullback runs where it's lead and, you know, powers and all this sort of old 90s and 2000 football from my era stuff. And it, it's fun to watch, and they're effective with it. It's not just it's like a gimmick to, to shorten the game. They get four- and five-yard runs out of that stuff and set up the passing game from it and, you know, obviously sort of electrify the the, uh, the possibility of play action with Gronk off of it. So it's fun to watch that stuff. It's fun, obviously, to watch uh, Devlin be effective in it, as he always is as a blocker. And he also get a chuckle every time they extend, <laughs> extend him out and try to throw a pass. But that stuff's fun as well. But uh, how much they get from it, I don't know. But uh, it'll be interesting to see going forward with a playoff run how much of it's this pro-style stuff because we've seen in in other years where, you know, they, they revert back to more spread, let it be a, a full Tommy game. But a lot of this stuff down the stretch has not been a full Tommy game. It really hasn't. So if you're trying to find box scores from this December to match stuff of years past, well, they're not running the same stuff. They're running a lot of this fullback stuff or, or too tight end stuff, uh, but not too tight end to spread with Bennett and get passes it's two tight ends to run it or get more modest gains in the in the shorter interior passing game so it is it's different stuff which is kind of interesting and i wanted to alert you guys to it but now let's kind of transition into sort of the 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 hot take beat down kind of stuff with uh what I would call a reintroduction to your New England Patriots defense. You know, you've had 17 games. You listen to this show, I think you have a greater appreciation for what's good, what's bad, what's real, as opposed to what's said, what's likely unreal, and what's stat-dependent and probably BS. So I wanted to sort of let you know who it is you cheer for without blinders, without hot takes, without using an antidote from a drive or two or three or a game or two or three of the 16 and trying to paint the whole damn thing. I think it was a tweet I sent out early in the week uh, that, you know, caused a little kerfuffle of my mom's word uh, of, you know, uh, people not under, thinking that it was a hot take to say that this Patriots defense is one of the best in the tournament. It's not a hot take. It's concrete. It's easy to find. It's extremely easily defensible, and it's not even an opinion. It's it's actually backed by these stats that people worship, uh, which I don't. But if that's your bag, come along for the ride and learn something. Here we go. So it's I say it's definitely one of the best in the tournament. I think one of the biggest myth, myths and one of the things that gets repeated so often about this defense, uh, everyone knows that they give a low level of points. I think it was they ended up fifth in the fifth in the NFL in points allowed, and somehow people want to sort of dismiss that and talk about points and yards per play. And blah, blah, blah. That shit don't matter, guys. That's It's not – this is a strategy game. The thing that matters is points. The play calls you make is to prevent points. The situational stuff you do is to prevent prevent points. The decisions you make in a defensive play calling situation or even a personnel situation is to prevent points, not to prevent amount of yards in a play. It's to prevent points. That's how things are done here. That's how things are done in really most of the places in the NFL. You don't have a yards per play goal. You don't. You don't have a number of three and outs goal. You don't. You, you, you play and you game plan to prevent points, not yards. So let's kind of dive into this, some of the myths, some of the things that are said most frequently, and if they're true. I think there are threads of truth to them. There are antidotes and games where they may have been true, but are they true throughout the, the breadth of the season? Usually not, especially not in the breadth, more just what's going on now with this team. And people think this, uh, and, and sometimes rightfully so, especially after all those yards they gave up in the first month. But the, the idea that Patriots are this defense that give up a ton of yards 
and then force a ton of field goals. And that's why they have this, you know, near top of league points per game because they just give up more, you know, they allow them down the field and then stop them, right? Well, not really. It's not actually true. Now, the reason their yard stats are so high is because of an abysmal September. We know that. We knew that coming from that point, when you started into the second week of October, there was no going back. I don't give a shit if you what you do, how well you play down the stretch. And they played awfully well other than that Miami game. You could never undo those stats. The stats were going to be poisons for the rest of the year. So if you want to worry about a year-long stat or ranking, you're going to be completely misled. It can't improve. No matter how good that team is, it steps on the field in November and December. Their stats are going to say otherwise because of some stuff with different groups, quite frankly, that was going on in September have happened. So that's why you don't pay attention to the aggregate full-season stuff. It just isn't very helpful to tell you what's going on today. It just it just doesn't help. But the idea that they give up all these yards and then they just stop people with field goals and, hey, man, you do that. You did that in September. You did it in October. You did it in November. Oh, not really September, but October, November, December. And maybe that's not sustainable. Is that true? Now, they actually give up second most in the league. Uh, points per red zone trip. So it is absolutely true that once people get down there, 3.94 is a stat if, if you care about that shit. But they're second in the league as far as when they get there and people get there for all 32 teams. When they arrive, who performs better? The Patriots. This is one of the best groups in the league. And people like to say, oh, well, you know, the, the defense is points per game and all this stuff. That's a team stat, and they're rated by the, the – the Patriots office doesn't help you once they arrive. They have nothing to do with once the ball stands on the 30, what you do from that point to the goal line, whether it be forcing a field goal, has 0.0 to do with Tom Brady in the offense. It just doesn't have anything to do with it. That is a defense-only stat. The points that are either given or garnered at that point have solely to do with the performance of the defense from that moment on. And the Patriots, 3.94 points per red zone trip. Second in the league. You're going to get there, and there's only one team in the league better than them. And that's what that is literally the most important stat in defensive football. Stopping points overall, yeah, kind of, but stopping the points there because that's where they're coming from. Presuming you're not giving up big plays and, you know, plus 50 stuff and all that. So they're really, really good at that. And so the, the, the yards and the yard stats are infinitely less important than that one. That one matters and they're very good at it. You can't take it away from them. So as they head into this tournament, there aren't, there only is one, and I don't, I don't have it in front of me who was one. Maybe it's Minnesota, maybe it's Jags, I don't know. But there aren't any of the teams that are better at the thing that matters most. So when you want to say, oh, they're a mediocre defense, this yard stat, this bullshit that doesn't have anything to do with it, you're pointing to the wrong thing, right? You're standing there holding an umbrella while you're standing in a puddle. It's not, it, it's not relevant to what it is you're trying to resolve in the moment. So you're talking about who can stop who from scoring so the little lights on the scoreboard don't increase. The Patriots are second best in the league at that. And that is an aggregate stat. It's even better when you look at it, I'm saying aggregate being over the course of the whole season. It's even better when you look at a smaller sample most recently. So that is who your defense is. The other stuff really doesn't matter much. And this isn't just my opinion. This is I know how I know uh, things are handled and preached and done inside uh, the best organization of football over the last 17 years. I know that's how it's preached with Coach Belichick. I know that's what Matt Patricia and those guys focus upon. I've heard that speech a thousand times. I understand the philosophy and the things that people are often focusing upon aren't what the pros do. Sorry. So uh, the next thing is the field goals 
and the idea in that same thing that we just talked about, the idea that they give up all these yards, but then they just force a ton of field goals. And man, you, you really put a lot of stress on the offense if if you just you know force a field goal every time someone gets down there. You just you give up all these yards, and then they arrive in your red zone. Yay, you got to stop, but you force a field goal every time. That puts a lot of stress on the offense. Uh, and is that true? Is that actually happening? Are, are the Patriots giving up an unusual amount of field goals? And that's great because you you know the Patriots then answer every three with a seven, and that's that accounts for their their deficit you know, the, the gap I guess that they have between the score and you know they they net four each time it goes down and eventually that's how they build leads and that's how they win. Is that true? Do the Patriots? give up some inordinate amount of field goals relative to these other defenses that I'm telling you they're better than, or at least as good the ones you think are the top teams. Is that true? No, it ain't true. The, the Patriots are 11th in the league. You know, top third, I guess, but in amount of field goals per drive. They don't give up more field goals. There's a lot of there's teams, there's a lot of other teams that give up many more field goals. And it, it, I think the misperception there is that there's a chunk of yards that the Patriots actually do give up, uh, and that probably accounts for the higher yard totals because the Patriots are near top of league in drive start. In other words, they do a great job on kickoff, uh, getting the ball down there. I think the drive start is like second or something in the league, maybe even first, and it's at it's at about the 23-3, 23 range, something like that. Again, I don't have it in front of me, but something to the effect that they're very good at giving their defense an advantageous start, right? And that's positive, right? But that's not given by the offense. That's given by the special teams. Uh, What they don't do is they don't overuse assets to prevent you from getting to the 50. Why? They don't believe the risk is worth the reward or the reward's worth the risk. So you don't see over-aggressive play calling 25 to 50. Why? Because there's not a lot to be gained by stopping them there. Uh, And I think this is something that really flies over the head of people that don't have football experience. Getting a high level of three and outs means that you gambled more, quite frankly. You commit more assets. You need, because of the makeup of your team, to win more often in one series time. Why? Because you believe you can't give up some real estate because you don't think your offense is good enough to get it back. Now, the Patriots know they have a good offense. They know they can walk back the real estate they give up. So they're not going to overuse seven and eight man boxes. And this is something I had actually noticed in, uh, noted in a tweet last week in game where, wow, okay, they're getting run funts and only committing six, uh, or they're getting at least a tight end in the box and a, a quarterback under center, a quarterback and gun. And they're not going seven. You know, they're, they're staying in sort of a nickel front, four down, two guys off. What's that do? It thins you a little bit. Why? Because they care more about playing coverage top down. You know, so what do you do when you make a decision like that? You concede a couple yards. You concede a few yards because it's not a competition for yards per play. It's a competition to prevent the big plays, to prevent them from in one giant chunk crossing midfield, right? So they're less aggressive 25 to 50 by choice. It's not by failure. It's not they're trying to get three and outs and they're failing. They make call choices. They make personnel choices. It's a football philosophy, not stat chasing philosophy. Stat chasing is not what NFL football is about. And not just for the good teams, it's for, for none of the teams. Now, there are situations where if you have no belief in your in your offense, you blitz more, you pressure more, you pack boxes more, you try for turnovers more because you need them because your offense can't go 80 yards. That's a true fact. But one of the areas where the Patriots have actually excelled defensively 
is 50 to 30. And I think this is where the frustration with people comes in. They see them get, you know, three-ish first downs. Boom, boom, boom. Um, not every drive, clearly, um, and we'll get, we can get to that later. But there are drives where they advance from that 23 up to midfield, and that's when things change. Why? Because that's when the football philosophy needs to change because now you're nearing the high red, which is we usually call that the 30 in it, uh, or the high high is 35, whatever you want to call it. But the point is that's, that is when I think the Patriots have really excelled this year, the 50 to the 30. And that's the area that, that matters more. Why? Because if they were failing there, and you know you get your swift movement from 25 to 50 and then you go and equally swiftly move down inside the 30 well then you'd get the high number of field goal attempts but the patriots aren't inordinately high and the amount of field goal attempts their opponents get per game they're not they're 11th right so that that perception is not reality the reality of it is they give up some yards in the areas that matter least because the reward for risking more assets to try to get a three and out or try to get a stop or needing to keep the other team penned, they don't believe in it because there's faith in the other side. If they were another organization, could you take those same 11 people with a shittier offense on the other side, take more risks, make your stats that aren't your goal go down? Of course you could. Of course you could. But that's where sort of football philosophy, I think, gets lost on people who just count beans and hump spreadsheets. So this is why this is why I think you know you need a reintroduction to what it is your team is doing and how you sort of understand why they do what they do and where they're good at and where they do have vulnerabilities and then sometimes yeah they, they give up things they'd rather not give up but there are moments a lot of moments where part of it's a concession by scheme you know uh, one front would presume to keep it to two or three yards the other front yeah it's much easier to get four because you've thinned it by a body. Uh, and you're willing to concede that in lieu of not giving up the 20-yard pass play. So there's decisions on each and everything. And that's why values that are entered into spreadsheets and you try to compare them all as if they're like things. That's why it makes no sense in football. It's why you should never do it unless you can filter it down to the bone where you know you're comparing like to like. But that never happens, right? So you get these goofy rankings where you're comparing a bunch of unlike things that are completely worth diddly-poo. Another grandpa word. Um, so anyway, moving on here. This, to me, is the one thing I think that, that is most in favor of the Patriots being uh, where they should be appreciated for even being a better defense than their points allowed uh, represents. They have an average lead. I believe this is second in the league, something like that, of almost seven points a game. So an average lead when they take the field as a defense, 6.57 or something like that, so six and a half points. The point of it is, situationally, they generally go out as a defense with a lead. Now, what does that mean? Now, some people might argue that, oh, well, then that's an advantage. You get to tee off more, blah, blah, blah. Well, the Patriots don't do that. They don't, with a lead, then start rushing and pressuring. They sit back. Why? Because time becomes your friend. You're happy to allow some concessions in front of you because time runs off and that works against the, uh, that works for you and against them. So I think this idea that if you were a defense that typically got the football with a lead, 
uh, had to defend the football with a lead, you would actually presume more yards because by philosophy, you're not being as aggressive to try to keep them down. You're leading. You're typically not just this is on average 6-5, but if you go to late late drives when they're ahead by 14 points and they're ahead by 20 points, you should accept, expect yards. That's garbage yards. For people that gamble, you kind of, that's where the bad beats come from. <laughs> you expect at those moments from a defense like this that there's going to be some poisoned well stuff in the box score because they lead so often, right? The dirty drive against the Falcons is a good example. You know, some of the stuff that you see down the stretch here against Buffalo Bills a, a couple weeks ago. If you're just going to, again, sort of, you know, dry hump the, the stat sheet, you're, you've got to understand the, the context that goes into those numbers. It's, there's no sameness there. So if anything, the Patriots' uh, numbers, you should be understanding, you should, you should actually expect the yards to be higher. You should almost expect to be a dirty point or two or three, a field goal or whatever, at the end of every game because they lead more often than a lot of these other defenses. So you, you find yourself in different situations where you're allowing yourself to concede schematically certain things in exchange for time and also exchange for avoiding the big play top down top down it's not bend but don't break it's just because I think that sometimes dumbs it down where you know you're not allowing yourself to bend at certain points there's just certain parts of the field where you're not willing to risk the assets and there's other parts of the field where it ain't bend don't break it's fucking stifling you know and that's if you look at the Patriots inside the 30 inside well you have the 20 if they're calling straight red zone they're second in the league. They're really, really good. They're not bending, not breaking down there. They're they're hardening, and they're they're as good as it gets. So, anyway, uh, one of the things here I wanted to also touch down is touched on touch on. Excuse me, is some of the other where they sit comparably on some of these areas that I think. Uh, there's the misperception, right? Now, we, we already talked about, obviously, opponents' points per game. They're at 18.5, the rest, you know, fifth in the league. And a lot of people try to dismiss that and say, oh, they're given some great advantage by the offense, so that's a team stat. It's special teams getting in some great spot, but, you know, they're really just a mediocre defense. To me, that's kind of nonsense. And, and quite frankly, it, the points come from with the defense simply on the field themselves. At no point does an offense allow points and when they do that's that's taken out of an unadjusted right if, if if there's a pick six you clearly understand that the defense themselves didn't give that um one of the things that i think you know oh, i actually alluded to this earlier with the old uh field goal attempts per game patriots and I, this is this is defensively opponents field goal attempts per game this i think is really enlightening to sort of that earlier point i think there's a perception out there that the Patriots' defense is just giving up this glut of, of, of field goal attempts, and at some point that's going to break against a, a good offense or something. The Patriots' opponents attempt 1.9 field goals per game. 1.9 field goals per game. That's 14th in the league. That's tied with Minnesota, who I think people presume to be the top best defense out there, right? Um, no. Jacksonville, which is second in the league, is only one five. It's not like we're talking about a full field goal difference. You're just talking about you know point four, and Pittsburgh is one point five. So Pittsburgh's actually the best in the league at not allowing uh, field goal attempts. But the idea that the Patriots are out there just giving up field goal attempt after field goal attempt is just not. It's just not factually accurate. Um, and the teams that I think people perceive to be so much better at winning out in the field and never allowing it to get down there. That's just not accurate. You know, you can look at their their peers. Baltimore, 2-1, actually worse than the Patriots. Uh, or some other teams around Carolina, who I think a lot of people would presume to be uh, at least a comparable or maybe even better defense just by by reputation or something than the Patriots. 2-1. 
They give up more. In other words, they allow them down there more often than the Patriots do. Um, one of the other ones, who, who's another peer? San Diego, where are they at? Well, they're not even called that anymore. Rams. L.A. Rams. Worse than the Patriots. 2-1. Uh, and again, there's context to all this stuff as well. So I don't want to just make too big a deal of, of, the, of this. But I, I just think it does point that a lot of things that people think and say and repeat and allow to become sort of part of the canon of, you know, the general population knowledge of who the Patriots are defensively. A lot of it, quite frankly, is simply nonsense. A lot of it's just simply easily researchable is is not true. And when the stack guys out there want to point to all the things that the Patriots are bad at, the yards per play and it's yards. It's always a yards metric, which I use this analogy all the time. I think it matters most. Uh, it's really easy, easy to see why it doesn't matter. Football isn't that much different fundamentally from basketball in that a goal has to be scored at the end. You don't get points for what goes on in the middle of the field. We obsess over football because people decided to paint white lines on the ground. What does it matter? None of the white lines out in the middle of the field matter. They really don't. Whether or not you full-court press or whether or not you half-court press or whether or not you just simply pack it around the basket, invariably it only matters if they can put it in the fucking goal. And that's why I think people need to understand that football is fundamentally that. Clearly Coach Belichick understands that. Clearly the Patriots organization and Matt Patricia understand that. If you look at what counts, that's where you concentrate your efforts. You don't concentrate your efforts on who's the best bean counter at midcourt or midfield. Uh, that simply isn't relevant to winning. Um, the, the, well, there are some correlations, but it's not a, a straight line. The stuff that's straight line happens down in that red zone. A, whether or not you get over there once you cross midfield, and B, the forcing of field goals and prevention of points, the point of the flipping game. All right, now one of the things I wanted to do here too as well is just to kind of walk through the comps. Who's out there when I make a claim like this is clearly one of the better defenses in the tournament and everyone rolls their eyes and points to some stupid yard stat that is from nothing, uh, for, you know, from four months ago that's irrelevant to today. I think one of the big things that happens here is, and I see a lot of Patriots fans who follow me on Twitter and, and like to have these kind of excuse me, conversations uh, online. I think there's a, there's a real bad habit, and it's called confirmation bias, of simply finding that one drive that agrees with what you think. Uh, a drive or two or, or a game or two, and then trying to sort of spread it out over the whole 16 and say, well, you know what? They really couldn't get off the field on these couple drives against the Steelers. Therefore, in that killed time of possession, and they just couldn't get off the field, and Tom Brady had to sit during that. Therefore, that's who they are throughout the 16. Well, that's not the case at all. You know, go watch any number of other games. Um, and it wasn't the case throughout every drive in the Pittsburgh game. It just was a couple. And it, there were harmful drives, but it isn't who they are till eternity. And it isn't, it's something that's easily searchable on just simply the time of possession thing or the Patriots' inordinate amount of, of, of time uh, where the def- defense is out on the field, getting walked up and down the field and then just preventing the field goal. No, they're, they're more normal, average, middle of the pack on time of possession, which tells you that that is not the case. So one of the things here uh, that I think is really helpful is is getting out of the bubble, right? Not just looking at this from a purely New England-focused look and saying, you know what, when I think that they're the worst at this or the best at this or whatever, there's a brand that goes with some of these other defenses, and I think people often don't realize that they're having their performances like you had against the Dolphins a few weeks ago where they have a stinker, or they're your game against the Chiefs that blew up your stats, or their comps where they actually played the same person you did and had the same opportunity to keep them the same amount of points that you did, and were they able to? 
Let's check in on some of those things. Snark is out of the world, out of this world right now. There's like a volcano of snark here about to eruption. So grab your seat, seat belts if you're in a vehicle. <laughs> so here we go. So one of the places, let's kind of walk through the list. Let's go through the list. Minnesota Vikings, good defense, right? Very good defense. And, and part of, it, it's important here to understand that I'm not about to go through this list of who the other teams are in an effort to tear them down. It's just more to provide context that I think these people perceptually, at least in New England, get passes for their bad converse, their bad their bad performances and get painted by their good ones. And the Patriots, conversely, come up with this points per game and then they're only painted or believed to be the ones that happen as outliers, <laughs> the couple bad games. That's who that's who they are, not all the other performances. And, and conversely, these other air quote good defenses get passes for their bad performances, although they all end up in the same place, <laughs> giving up about the same amount of yards. Let's look at the Vikings as an example. Now, the Vikings had an opportunity, much like the Patriots, to play the Saints, except the Vikings got to play them at home. What did they give up to the Saints? 19 points. What did the Patriots give up to the Saints? 20. I think that's relevant. You may May not this great Vikings defense, and they are. They're very good. Traveled to Pittsburgh, and what did they give up to the Steelers? 26. Right around the same number that the Patriots did, slightly more. Um, one of the other, and one of the other points that I always like to make, well, here, one of the that, that would look to them as being more of a stinker would be they gave up 30 to the Redskins. Not a great offense, an okay offense, but to give up the 30 is a bad day's work for the Vikings offense. So I look at, I like to look at situations like that and say, okay, now if it had been the Patriots doing that, what would people say about the Patriots? Damn it, how dare you give up 30 to them? Well, you know what the Vikings did. And people's perception of the Vikings stay and stay colored much more positive. Look at the Vikings against the Panthers. Oh, oh, they had a stinker against them. But isn't that that great Vikings defense that everyone loves? Yeah, they gave up 31 to the Panthers. So they had a bad day of work themselves, much like the Patriots did against that group. The flip side of this is how one gets to a very positive stat ranking, if that's your thing. Or they get to a great points per game thing. And Obviously, the Patriots always get knocked when they look and say, oh, you did it against Bryce Petty. Oh, you did it against the Bills at home. Oh, you did it against this team. And Oh, you did it against Tampa. Oh, you did it against this team, right? So do you think that other people don't play bad offenses? Do you think that other people's stats don't get boosted by you know really favorable situations? Do you think that the Vikings didn't play the Brett Hundley Packers offense twice and help get that number really, really low? Do you think they didn't play the Bears twice, whose offense is completely anemic, at one point giving up 10? Oh, it was their other performance again, them 17. I think if the Patriots gave up 17 to the Bears, people would think that was a problem, quite frankly. Um, you know, and that's kind of the thing that I think people overlook and forget. Other people are having their own issues, and they're getting their own benefit. The Vikings gave up 16 to the Browns. Uh, you know, that's above the Patriots per game. It's above their own per game. So it wasn't a perfect day for them. So they also had some really, really positive days, obviously, against some of these other down offenses. But this is not a team. You know, the Vikings defense didn't get to that number by playing the Saints every week. They didn't. And so it's weird to try to judge the 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 Patriots through the lens that, oh, all the ones that you did well against bad teams shouldn't count. They fucking count for everyone else. That logic makes no sense to me. It isn't logic. It's illogical. So let's go to the next. Let's go through the Panthers here. What do we see when we look at the Carolina Panthers and how they got to their stat rankings and all the things that they are now? Um, what do we have here? Oh, beautiful. The Panthers uh, played the Saints twice, right? That same Saints team that the Patriots 
in New Orleans put a really nice number against. Keeping them to 20 down there is good day of work. This Panthers defense, which I think perceptually people will say are probably a bit, they're guessing, you know, they're going off of the talk radio or what they heard on the broadcast or blah, 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 or what their perception of, is of their team. Oh, the, the Panthers defense is probably better than the Patriots, right? They gave up 34 to the Saints at home. Then they traveled to the Saints and gave up 31. Patriots did not have that problem. And that's as direct line of correlation as you can possibly get. Uh, a correlation, but just a direct line of, of of comp that you can possibly ask for. Uh, they played the same team. They had far more trouble with them than the Patriots did. So explain to me why that then still means they're somehow better. It isn't. It, it doesn't. That, that logic does not fly with me. So moving down the line here, some other issues of that particular team. The Panthers played the Falcons, right? Played them. Uh, twice. Gave up 22 to the Falcons. Patriots didn't have that problem. They only gave a 7. One was a dirty 7 at the end of the game. They played them earlier in the year, which we don't want to knock them for because, you know, we're doing that with the Patriots too, kind of dismissing other earlier performances. But the, the Panthers played them at home and gave up 17. Patriots played the, the Falcons at home and only gave up 7. So, again, you try to explain to me why that defense still gets by default the perception of being better. Shouldn't. Just doesn't logically work that way. But let's continue to go down the list. Now, the Jaguars are one of my favorite. Obviously a very good uh, defense. Obviously very good at forcing turnovers, getting sack numbers, all those kinds of things. But the, the, the Jaguars do have one of those profiles that if you were to change the helmet stickers, make them wear red, white, and blue, and take all of these performances, I know without a doubt what people would say about this, that they haven't played anyone, that they haven't played anyone. They have one or two shining performances where they air quote played someone and they had a good quarterback or something like the Steelers and they shown out on that day. But you know, you should discount all the other stuff because they're just not against good teams, right? They did it against uh you know, the Texans early before Deshaun Watson, they get they post a huge number. They do it against the Ravens offense. Who cares about that? They did it against the Bengals. Oh, they've struggled. They do it against the Colts. Who cares? That number shouldn't matter. They did it against the Browns, uh, seven points. But, hey, everyone's supposed to do that against the Browns. They, the, they got to play the Colts twice. They held them to 10. Oh, that shouldn't count. They, get, they play the Texans late in the year without Deshaun Watson, half their team. Oh, that shouldn't count. But uh, that's sort of that, to me, that mentality of you got to understand, their number got built up that way, too. They're 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 – Kingdom was built on the backs of a lot of bad offenses. Uh, so understand them, I think, really the same way you should look at your own team. So, But their stinkers, they gave up 44 points just two weeks ago. And that's the one to me that is kind of a laugher. It's Jimmy Garoppolo. It's sort of the burgeoning story. But can you imagine if two weeks ago the Patriots' defense, regardless of what their points per game is, regardless of what turnover differential was for them, if in the mind freshness just two weeks ago the Patriots had given up 44 points to a non-playoff team, regardless of whether you know their quarterback change has been good for them. 44 points. Can you imagine the fury or concern or worry or whatever about this defense heading into the playoffs? It would be, it'd be on its head, and we know that. But, again, people are judged differently. This team that we're supposed to be told, and you tell me, if the Patriots played uh, on the road against the Niners, do you think the Patriots give up 44 to them? Do you? Highly doubt it. Highly doubt it. Highly doubt it. I'd I'd be happy to place that chip up against anyone if we were able to do that kind of bet. And I just don't think it happens that way. And with the Jags, remember, they're a team that also traveled to play the Jets. What they do, they give up 23. Right in that neighborhood, right where the Patriots did as well. And why? That, that's a direct comp. 
It's all about points. They're giving up just about the exact same. So you tell me while they're fundamentally wildly different. This is also an offense or defense that early in the year gave up 37 to the lowly Titans. Now, again, we'll dismiss that as their stinker, much like the Patriots had with the Chiefs. But it does it does show that they're not stinker-averse. They're, they're able to go out there and lay those eggs, one at the beginning of the year, one later in the year. Why are they so presumed to be so much better? Well, because a lot of these stats are built up on the backs of the Browns and Colts and Texans without their quarterback. That's just the reality of the situations and getting to play the Titans late season, a 15-10 to 10 stinker. So, again, you give the Patriots defense and offense, the full team, this same schedule – it goes markedly different. Maybe, maybe, who knows? The Patriots defense could give a very, very similar final outcome on points. Maybe even better. Now, moving on, we'll go here to, let's see, the Rams. I think they, they provide a decent example because people think of uh, the D coordinator. They love him. He kicked ass in Denver. He gets the new gig there. And, uh, you know, people think of Aaron Donald. They think of the one player. Well, Aaron Donald's awesome. He's the best out there. Great defense, right? Must be better than yours. Must be better than yours. Are they? I don't know. They gave up 34 to the Rams. Well, we'll not, we'll discount that one a little bit, though. That was just last week, and a lot of people sat. But Titans, road game, 23. I don't know. If Patriots gave up 23 to the Titans, I think there'd be some panic in the streets. Uh, they gave up 43. Home game, 43 to the Rams. 43 to the Rams. You give up 43 to the Rams, I don't care who's quarterback. I know in these streets, in these Twitter streets, people would be losing their freaking mind. Uh, They played at home, the Saints as well. And the Rams held the Saints to, wait for it, wait for it, 20. Magic number, same as the Patriots. Why are they different? Because of perception, not reality. Is a rat's ass about yards. It's still, as we say, all about points. Now, moving forward, the Rams did what most people did to that Texans offense in the absence of, uh, of, of Deshaun Watson. Held him to seven. Good day's work. So there's a bunch of positive performances here, but you can go back to mid-October, and there's some negatives. The Rams gave up 30 to the Cowboys. 30, all right? And the Cowboys were an up-and-down offense at that time. So the Early in the season, you don't give much credit for this, and this is their stinker. The Rams stinker was 39 to the Niners, 39 to the Niners in September, pre-Jimmy Garoppolo. So their own stats have their own sort of mixed story as well. So, again, I kind of point to these as examples to let you know that what's going on in your backyard is you're not the only planet on Earth. You know, they're the only planet in the universe. These other teams are having their own issues. The Eagles, this is a great example, moving down. I think perceptually people look at the Eagles and say, oh, great defense. You know, that's, oh, they must be better than the Patriots. When I make that one of the better in the tournament things, oh, that's one you de facto put them behind. Well, really? Because the 17th of December, they played the Giants who couldn't score against anyone. The Giants put up almost 30 points, 29 points. Really? Okay. Um, well, the Eagles did beat the Rams in the first week of December, but the Rams scored 35. I think when you give up 35, you think of top defense in the league, do you? I certainly don't. Um, and then how did they boost the rankings? How did they get to the point where their numbers look really nice? They played the Bears. Only give up three, you know? Again, you're going to discount the Patriots for having a, Bryce, a day against Bryce Petty or a day on the road against the, the Bills. But other people's kingdoms were built on similar weak bricks. So uh, the Chargers, there's a good example. The Eagles play the Chargers. They give up 24. Patriots play them. They don't give up that many points. So, again, you explain to me how it 
counts for you, but not for them. That to me is probably, if you, if, if you sort of gotten anything from this little rant, it's that there's a bunch of situations where I think the rules are different for other people than what you hold against yourself or what other people hold the Patriots. The standard floats, and it never, never should. I put this also to the Steelers because I know this will fire up some Steelers fans are out there. I don't know if you that listen to this pod, obviously, but uh, the Steelers are, are kind of a case study in the in, in the two sets of rules kind of situation. The, they play at home against the Browns. Uh, you know, At the end of the season, I get that they sat a lot of people, but it's still only short of one guy. Hayward uh, that sat and giving up 24 points to the Browns is nothing, you know, is not something to be proud of. Giving up 38 to the Ravens a couple weeks prior to that, good lord, I can imagine if the Patriots at home gave up 38 points to the Ravens and what the reaction would be. Steelers at home give up 28 to the Packers, a Brett Hundley group that hasn't put up that kind of offense with him running the offense uh, against anyone. All right, you know that's that's the kind of thing that I can imagine if the Patriots did that, what the reaction would be. Um, this is you know you're probably getting tired of this rant. I'm kind of tired of doing it, but I think we're kind of to the point where you should at least appreciate that the world looks different. If you stand up, walk off, uh, you know, walk out of your little little mini portion of this world and look around and realize that. Some of the people who are believed to be world beaters, they have stinkers that are pretty similar to yours. And when they have comps, they're almost directly analogous to yours. And there's no reason if you're a Patriots fan and has nothing to do with being a homer or bias or anything about thinking that your group in the comps that you can find are actually very, very similar or in some cases better than other people if everyone is applied the same lens or filter. Uh, and that's not bias. That's not, that's not you know, just homerism. That's just the reality of the situation. I think it's stopping bias, quite frankly. There's a bias about what the Patriots offense garners the defense, and it's not very accurate. It's very hard to tell. I'd love to flip on the film with people and, and show them, uh, but you know that's not obviously uh, plausible here with the way we do podcasts. So anyway, that's kind of the end of that particular little, little rant. Uh, but one of the things that I kind of wanted to leave you with is just a little more defensive philosophy on why I spend my time looking at the film, understanding the why behind play calls, the why behind choices in defense, and the things I want to kind of help fans of the game that love this pod get to understand and that's understanding well if i'll back up one second i don't like to talk this about this it bores the hell out of me but you know that i have an mba from babson many of you that have followed my life and career and all that stuff i have a, a decent a very solid background in stats you know i've done data analysis i did da i had to do extensive amount of that to get my grad work and so i'm very comfortable in that world and i think one of the things that, that you learn by being exposed to that kind of stuff. And for me, it's more market analysis and sales figures and, 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 and you know, more of, a, more of the business angle of understanding stats and how to filter and how to, how to sort of discern information, what matters, what doesn't, right? That's where I feel very, very comfortable with stats. But I think when you have like a professional level understanding of the value of stats, football is one of the places where you know that they're least valuable because it's so friggin' hard to find sameness. It's so friggin' hard to compare like things. And when you fudge on that and just pretend like it's all sameness, well, then you miss it. And I think a lot of people that do stats just don't understand that the sameness isn't there because they don't have the background. And so part of this is when I kind of talk shit about stats, it's not 
from a place of the meathead football player that just says, oh, numbers bad, football good. It's I have a pretty good fundamental understanding of what needs to go into value and understanding the motivation behind what created that value that goes in the little square that you put into Excel and whether or not it translates. And that, I think, is why you don't see people, and there are people out there, that have a little bit of a mathematics or a little bit of a stats background or even just a, a general a good solid numerical foundation, whether it be through mathematics or whatever it is at undergrad level, to go in and know the football inherently, intimately, inside and out, and say, you know what, this shit doesn't work with this sport. It would work in golf. It works great in basketball if we want to study free throw percentage. It works great in three-point percentage because you know what, in those moments, they're aiming for the same thing. But Here's what happens in football, and this is why it makes it so hard. Or you now have, if you have a little bit of knowledge on that side, you know not to do it with stats. It's not a lack of belief in it, it's a real intimate understanding of what it doesn't represent and why it doesn't fit. You can't compare unlike things. You just don't do that in stats. And stats in football are so hard to make sure that you are comparing like things. Something happens, and from that you get a raw number a stat or whatever, and a ranking in aggregate. And if you're foolish enough to use it, good, great, fill up your Excel. But here's the problem. Cool story. It doesn't really work. And that's where the problem is. When you give people football, uh, when you give someone who doesn't have football experience a raw number, they tend to value them in absolute terms. They tend to assume that there is sameness where sameness doesn't exist. Football's a game of choices. We talk about this all the time. You're not as if... You know, the New England Patriots are standing at the free throw line trying to hit free throws, the same as the Bengals are, the same as the the Ravens are. And then, hey, we can say this team has a better free throw shooting team because of a free throw percent. Because at the moment of free throws, almost everyone is trying to make it in the exact same time and rate. Do it better, do it more, you do it better. And except those rarest of occasions, the outliers where you're intentionally missing a free throw, right? Just using that as sort of a metaphor. But that isn't what happens in football. They're making a choice, and it's not an absolute choice. How to factor a defense, how much personnel to use, whether or not the pressure, what they want to concede, how aggressively they need to have it stopped in a moment. And that's why it makes so very little sense so few times to start comparing them that way. If you're going to tell me X is better because this number is lower, you better be able to very intimately detail why it's the same as what you're comparing it to. And in most often cases, you fail. That's just how it is with people who really, really understand the game and can at least speak fluently with the numbers. I I think one of the things that, that people miss the most when they talk about this is understanding what choice was made. And and I personally, as an outsider now myself, I've been out of the NFL for nine years. I don't know the choice that's being made. I can kind of try to decipher it by looking back. But one of the things that, that comes into play here is that when you're looking for sameness, like say, say this, like versus if I want to make a definitive statement about how good the, we'll just stick with the Patriots. Patriots defense is on third and short versus the Pittsburgh defense on third and short versus the Jacksonville defense on third and short. There's something that goes into that number. Was there third and short situationally? Was it third and short back at their own 25 uh, on the, on the flip side uh, where you're not backed up or I'm sorry, the offense is backed up. You're not willing to try to stop it. You're not necessarily willing to go goal line personnel there. But a third and short on the other side of the field, back in your red zone, well, you're selling out because you don't want the conversion and a new set of downs. So 
third down and short defense comparisons kind of matter on which side of the field, you know, because you're willing to extend more assets to stop it in one place versus the other. So if you want to compare them in the aggregate, that's not very smart to do. So it's it's one of those things where I really think that filtering is the absolute most important thing in stats that are relative to football. And you have to be really smart about how you do it. And what that means is you really end up taking these giant pools of things, 500 you know, input things, and whittling them down to 50 or 60. And that bothers people because it takes it too small. But you know what? Then you get sameness. And then it has some value. And the Patriots do stuff like that. They in-house filter. They do in-house use stats. But they want sameness. They don't want to be comparing unlike things. And I think that's a really, really smart use of stats. It's not that they're valueless, but the value is far less than, than I think people understand. The, the, certainly less than they're portrayed from outside people want to say, this is the best because the number is higher. This is the best because the number is lower. Well, not necessarily what went into the value that made the number. Um, one of the things that you know, I want to kind of kind of put a bow on this to, to help people better understand what matters most uh, when you're trying to discern if a, if a group is going to be able to stop something or if the group is better relative to someone else with stopping something, you again want to know all the things that went into building that number, right? So if the Patriots, we'll use another sort of example here, the Patriots short yardage offense, right? If you're looking back at the Patriots short yardage offense and you were really, really good at moving the ball behind Marcus Cannon and Shaq Mason, uh, and then all of a sudden you don't have Marcus Cannon, and but you have this number that tells you, oh dang, they're like the we're like the third best team in the NFL, and and I, I'm just making these numbers up, third best team in the NFL at converting third and short, and you know what? That means that number tells me I should go for it. Well, you know what? Maybe not now because there's been a personnel change, and the personnel is so infinitely more important uh, than whatever it is that built that number up to be what it is. And it also matters what was across from you when you helped build that number. Maybe you had, you know, I don't know, a hundred of those runs throughout the year, and a lot of them need to be filtered out, half of them, because they happened in your own backyard or your own end of the field where they weren't willing to put the assets against you. So, you know what? Okay, filter those out. Now let's find something that's same to the situation that we're now in. And if you realize that, oh, shit, uh, when we face this group, Earlier in the year, say if it's a team that you're playing a second time, we converted 4-4 on them in that situation. But you know what? You're now down a guy offensively that's across from a guy that wasn't there that was injured. Well, then shit, how good is the stat? It's completely friggin' worthless, right? Because it doesn't tell you. It doesn't speak to what's happening in the moment. Same with these you know, yard stats that have nothing to do with what the Patriots are going to put out on the field defensively later. You look situationally where there's sameness. And if, uh, if there's nothing else, you print the numbers out and you film your birdcage, your dogcage, your cats can piss on it, whatever it happens to be. But they're not worth a ton. So I think that really should be the lesson and understanding of what numbers in football mean. They can mean something, but they better be pointed and they better be filtered down to the bone to the stuff that's relevant for what's actually happening. And if not, they're more often going to mislead you to think something that's not actually true, especially if the value is representing something the team wasn't aiming to get. You know, they're all aiming to get a free throw. They're all aiming to get driving accuracy. They all want to hit the fairway if it's golf. So you can compare driving accuracy. There's not people that are choosing to send that ball out into the out into the into the rough. They don't want to be there. Everyone wants the same thing. But when a defense lines up, they're not all aiming for the lowest possible yard per play. They're not. 
Some are conceding something because of other contextual factors. Understand that. Understand the game. That's probably the longest rant you'll ever hear about this kind of stuff. I do like these kind of conversations, and I think they're fun to have. So I'll, uh, you know what, I'm half thinking because this show went so long that I might divide this up into two separate shows, the Jets wrap and this little rant on stats, so that they're two separate smaller shows that you don't have to click into one or the other. That's the idea. Now, we're going to get back into much deeper Patriot-specific stuff next week when we know who that opponent is, and we can talk a little bit about the burgeoning sort of roster with the health and Branch and and Mitchell and Hogan and James White possibly healthy and Burkhead and all those guys and what that might possibly mean, what it might possibly look like on both sides of the ball with all the bodies back. Uh, It's exciting, and I think we'll get a little deeper into that next time. So thank you for tuning in here to the Real Thing Patriots podcast. Thanks for sitting in on my little little rant and enjoying it. Um, Or maybe you didn't. Who knows? But uh, hit me up on Twitter. Let me know what you think. Let's talk uh, another time. Uh, But enjoy this little bye week off. I know it's probably going to eat at you if you're a Patriots fan because you're not going to get to watch your team this weekend. Watch the others. Learn a little bit about them. And we'll talk about that on the other side. Take care now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.